You're listening to audio from Crossroads Community Church, located in Fogelsville, Pennsylvania. If you want to learn more about C3 and what it is about, you can visit us at c3lehigh.com. And now, for today's sermon. So Wednesday nights have turned into fellowship nights. It's an opportunity for us to gather around the bonfire. We have bonfire yard games. We've had uh, pickup volleyball games, and there hasn't been a single injury, so we're hoping to change that this Wednesday. Um, We need to put more effort if nobody's getting hurt. So this Wednesday, come out, fellowship. It's going to be an awesome time. And I also want to say that on the Church Center app currently right now are signups for our baptism class and our baptism worship night happening this fall. And I understand that if you've been attending here for a while, you've probably heard me say the phrase or the sentence a lot. This is one of my favorite events. I just love everything that we do, okay? Like every church event is my favorite um, event. Can I get a witness this morning? I mean, there's just so many cool, incredible things that God is doing that every event, everything that we do is my favorite. And so this fall, one of my other favorite events that's going to be happening is the baptism in worship night. Last year, it was just an incredibly anointed time, worshiping outside, celebrating those who are getting baptized. Make sure that if you want to be baptized, you have to take the prerequisite class. More information on that is is located on the Church Center app. Are you ready for the word this morning? I got to go hydrate. Um, We're continuing our series, living uh, as Christians in a Roman world, even though our worship leader let the cat out of the bag and the secrets out. But we're continuing our series, living as Christians in a Roman world. And as always, I just want to mention that this sermon is going to contain mature content. Part of the reason why it contains mature content is because when we talk about the culture of Rome, this is a very spiritually depraved culture. This is a very dark, demonic culture. And we see a lot of similarities today, in today's world, in our country, between the Roman Empire and what we're going through today. We're going to be continuing to read from Romans chapter 1. If you would turn there with me in your Bibles, that's Romans chapter 1. If you haven't brought in your Bible with you this morning, um, I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you. Bring the hard copy Word of God. You've probably heard me say this before, but I'll say it again. I hate technology. Can I get a witness this morning? I hate technology. I, I'm like six um, iPhone updates behind. And, and a part of the reason is because I'm a creature of habit. When I go out to eat, I get the same thing every time. When I find something good, I don't want to let it go. I believe that I can preach a biblical message off of those who are stuck in their habits, but we won't go to there today. And so... I, I, I just, I love, I, I like how things work, you know, when they stay consistent. And my phone, I hardly ever update it because every time I update it, it changes. And I don't like that. With the Word of God, you never have to worry about an update. It is what it is. It says what it says. We don't need to update it. We don't need to critique it. It is perfect in its current context. And so I just want to challenge you. Get a hard copy of the Word of God with you. You don't have to worry about uh, your phone shutting off. Or as uh, Bill Van Hartzell, and for those of you who know, he made a great point to me one Sunday. He said, I I don't like my phone because I get different news updates, and it's never good news. (laughs) He's like, I get different news alerts. It's never good, and it distracts me from my devotional time. But when I have the Word of God, I can put my phone away and just have one-on-one time between me and Jesus. I could continue to go down the list of reasons as to why you need the hard copy word of God in your hands, but I want to challenge you in the weeks to come do it. Um, Romans chapter 1. This morning is going to be more like a Bible study. 
This morning, a lot of the points of this sermon are from Scripture, which gives you the ability to underline different parts of Scripture, make little uh, notes, and I want to challenge you to do that. But this morning, we're reading from Romans chapter 1. I'll give you the specific verses in a few moments. But Romans chapter 1 has arguably been the most debated chapter in the Bible by various denominations more over the past five years than any other scriptural passage in the Word of God. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the Word of God has been increasingly, uh, has been increasingly seen as offensive. As a matter of fact, just a few weeks ago, Pastor Matthew Mignac was reading his Bible out loud in Seattle, Washington near a Pride event, and he was arrested because he was posed as a health and public health risk. It's a public safety risk, health risk. And the irony is, is that less than 20 feet behind him, when he was just reading scripture out loud, less than 20 feet behind him were adult grown men who were nearly nude. And the pastor gets arrested. The Word of God is being viewed as more and more as it is seen as, quote-unquote, hate speech. And for those of you who are here this morning and you say, why did he have to go and read the Word of God publicly? Nobody has to do that. The Bible doesn't say that. It, it does, but we'll put that aside. But there might be those who say, why did he have to read Scripture out loud? And I want to reference that, you know, in Harrisburg, every year, Typically during the springtime, they host an event where over the course of four days, 24-7, Scripture is re read out loud on the steps of the state capitol over a PA system. And there, there's just, they have people sign up for different time slots to come in. By the way, we're going to sign up for some time slots next year. And the public reports from the police officers have said that during those four days, crime almost ceases to exist in the city of Harrisburg. There's something powerful about the Word of God. When you speak the Word of God, it's powerful. Amen, church? Paul's words in Romans 1 are found to be offensive. They're found to be offensive among some that so much so that just a few weeks ago, two Canadian pastors were arrested when they preached from Romans chapter 1. Paul, in his letter in Romans 1, paints a very serious picture. Paul articulates that humans, us, we, are in a bad condition. It's critical today that before we begin to discuss the sins of mankind, that we understand that we're not talking about the world sin, we're not talking about other sin, we're talking about the sin of humankind, we're talking about us. We're talking about you and I. Paul paints a picture of humanity in Romans 1 that is mankind minus God and in rebellion. Why does Paul do this? Why does Paul paint this picture? Well, first, it's to get us to understand something about God's character. God hates sin. He hates sin. God hates is a statement that we aren't familiar with hearing. So much so that when I make that statement, some of you have already postured yourselves to get on the defense and go, no, 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 God is all loving. But I'm here to tell you this morning that a part of God hates, and he hates sin. According to the prophets, according to Proverbs, according to Psalms, the statement can be found in various books of the Bible, the ones that I just referenced, where they explicitly say, God hates wickedness. God hates sin. Sin. 
Why does Paul paint a picture of humanity minus God in rebellion? Aside from getting us to understand that God hates sin, Paul does this to get us to understand something. That when we say we are saved from something, we must acknowledge that we are saved from something. When you and I claim to be Christ followers, we make the statement, I'm saved. We have to acknowledge saved from what? And the reality is, is that you and I are saved from God's wrath. Hell is God's wrath unleashed and untamed. When you and I say we're saved, what we are proclaiming is that we are saved by God, from God, from his wrath and his just judgment. Why does Paul paint a picture of humanity minus God and in rebellion to get us to understand the true meaning when we say we're saved? Paul paints a picture to get us to understand that you and I are sinners. Sinners in need of a Savior. Paul paints a picture of the darkness of sin so that you can can understand how beautiful the light of Christ is. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, if you would turn there with me. That's Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world of God's invisible qualities, his internal, excuse me, eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor gave him thanks, but their thinking became futile futile, and foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Hit the pause button. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Although they claimed to be wise, although they claimed, even having the technological capability to see in the womb that it is indeed a life, although they claimed to be beyond the most basic biology lessons, although they claimed to be progressive advancing, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, the immortal God of image, for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds, animals, and reptiles. Paul starts out this verse and he says, the wrath of God is being revealed. I want us to hit the pause button and that's where we're going to spend a little bit of our time studying this morning. I want to say this, Wrath is a part of God's character. I want to say that again. Wrath is a part of God's character. We don't want to acknowledge this side of his character anymore. We want to see God is, is all loving, so much so that he approves of what I do, what I think, and the choices that I make. We want to remove wrath from being any part of our God. Can I tell you that when mankind starts manipulating and determining what kind of God they serve, it is not the one true God anymore. We're serving something, someone else. Wrath is a part of the character of God. 
We live in a day and age where we don't want to see the one true God as having wrath or judgment. We don't want to acknowledge God's wrath. We don't want to believe that a part of his character is wrath. How, after all, we ask the question, how can an all-loving God also be wrathful? Wrath is a part of God's character because it's what he feels when he sees what mankind has done. Let me put it to you this way, and I want to give a trigger warning for those who may have a part of your testimonies coming out of different sexual sins and abuses that we're going to be touching on that in just a moment. But I want to ask you the question, is wrath not what you feel when you hear the news and you see different reports of children being molested? Is wrath not what you and I sense when we hear about young girls being trafficked? And we hear that the person responsible has only gotten 20 years. Is wrath not what we feel when we see the searing pain of divorce? Is wrath not what you sense when you see the worst kind of greed and exploitation imaginable on the daily news as if it is normal? If that feeling of righteous passion to stop wrath, stop evil, if that is what you and I feel when we see these reports, how much more is that feeling made known in the heart of God when he sees these things? How much more is that feeling felt in God who is holy and just when he sees wickedness and injustice? God sees the damage that sin causes and it awakens his perfect wrath. I say his perfect wrath because you and I have a fallen view of wrath. We see wrath as just kind of of, of unjust, it flies off the handle, it's not controllable, but can I tell you that God's wrath is perfect. The reality is that wrath, the feeling of profound amount of hate and anguish with the desire to stop evil and see righteousness reign is a feeling that is not just aimed at the world around us. Friends, let me hit the pause button once more. When we start getting in the topics about God's wrath, I've heard some Christians say, praise God as if it is aimed at everybody else. Can I tell you that that wrath is aimed at you and I? That wrath is what we cause God's heart to feel when you and I sin. That wrath was once aimed at you and I purely. But then Jesus. God's wrath was felt by Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he felt his wrath so much so that he sweat blood. Science would validate that this is not only possible, but it is the deepest feeling of anguish that a human can feel. Jesus felt the wrath of God so much so that he said, Lord, if it be your will, would you take this cup away from me? The cup that he was referring to was a cup overflowing and filled with God's wrath. And Jesus drank it for you and I on the cross. He drank God's wrath in its entirety. Pastor, why talk about God's wrath? Because wrath is essential to God's holiness. 
Wrath proves God's hostility and anger towards sin. I believe that we are a generation that has no problem sinning again and again and again because we don't fully understand how much God hates sin. It's important to understand God's wrath because it's essential in fully understanding his love and his mercy. Jesus either gets your wrath on the cross or you and I feel God's wrath in hell. Understanding God's wrath helps us understand that we are saved from the wrath of God. When you and I proclaim the message, I'm redeemed, we are redeemed from this punishment. Romans 1 also teaches us It's not that mankind doesn't know the truth of God's existence. It's that mankind suppresses that truth. At the end of Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. It's kind of like this. When my girls and I are in a pool, I'll typically find a big oversized beach ball. And I'll hold it down under the water and get it between my legs to the point to where when they're not expecting it, they're all just kind of waiting and there's this anticipation and I let it fly and it shoots up out of the water. It gets the crowd going. They love it. (laughs) My two-year-old thinks that I'm a magician. It's awesome. They absolutely love that moment where I take the ball and I suppress it underwater. Suppressing truth is kind of like if that ball was named truth. It doesn't mean that that truth doesn't exist. It means that we're holding it in a place that can't be seen. Paul is saying you see that God exists and you suppress that from reality. You push that to the back of your mind. Paul is referring to God's natural revelation. One philosopher said it like this, God is revealed by the stars above and the law within. The stars above, as in you and I look at creation around us, we see how perfect and powerful it is, and we can see the attributes of God's power in his creation. You and I look at the world around us, and we see how perfectly made it was for humans to inhabit it. And Scripture says that it's so perfect and it's so powerful that you can't help but look at the creation and say there must be a grand master designer of it. The law within us, as in, when you take a toy away from a toddler, you know what wrath is. Nobody ever taught my daughters that if somebody takes something from you, that's wrong. They came out of the womb knowing that lesson. And still to this day, when when a toddler, when you take a toy that is theirs away from them, they know instinctually that is wrong. I wanted that, and you took it from me. Nobody had to explain to that toddler. They knew because God's law is written on the heart of man. When you and I were younger and we took too many cookies from the cookie jar, there was a feeling that set in of conviction, and I had one individual in first service who was not repentant, and he said, I feel nothing. (laughs) Thankfully, Tim's no longer on the board, so we don't have to worry about that unrepentant heart infecting our church. I loved him. But you and I felt something. We felt conviction. 
And I remember on a more serious note, I remember being in high school and a kid who was in my class, I remember him sharing this story of how he and his girlfriend lost their virginity the weekend before. And I remember the conversation stopping when he said at the end of this commentary on how it was, he ends his story by saying, and I felt so horrible. How did he know that? Because he knew that he had violated God's law. It's not that we don't know God's law. It's what degree are we suppressing his truth? Then in addition to natural revelation, there's special revelation, which is where God reveals himself in word and prayer and through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But Paul says that mankind has seen proof of God through his creation and the law written on our hearts. And what Paul is saying is that someday when we all stand before God Almighty, you and I cannot have the excuse, justifiably so, to stand before God and say, I didn't know you existed. Paul says that excuse is taken away by his creation. God has revealed himself to mankind. Paul says, although God is revealing himself, it is plain to see. We can see God's power in creation. We can see his attributes, the wicked hearts of many. Rather than saying, here's the proof of the creator, they seek to suppress this from reality. The attempt to suppress truth from this next text that we're going to read would shock you. I could read you data report after data report of millions upon millions and millions of dollars being spent to try and pay experts to say that this text doesn't mean what it says. I could show you reports of millions and millions who right now are experiencing a denominational split in their congregation over this text. Pastors have been in prison because they've preached this text. And a few weeks ago, I mentioned this very text and I said we would be coming back to it. And here we are, Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 32. We're going to skip down to verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with men and received themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. So that they do what ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent new ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things but also approve of others who do them. 
there have been entire political campaigns that celebrate the list that I just read to you. Paul mentions the progression of sin, that they knew God, but they openly rejected him. And because they rejected God, things got worse, not better. We call it progress today. They begin to worship idols. Notice that at the beginning of this verse is that they begin to worship other things. My point is this. When God doesn't lord over your life, you will put something in his place. When God doesn't lord over your life, something that is more harshly demanding, you will put in its, his place. In our day and age, we look at idol worship as if it's not relevant. We don't do that anymore, Pastor. I haven't seen anybody going around, you know, different false idols and altars. I haven't seen that. Can I tell you this? this Sunday morning, this beautiful, gorgeous Sunday morning, that idol worship is very much so a part of church culture today. There's the idol of possessions, where we have this insatiable desire as a culture to have more stuff. The newest cars, the biggest flat screen, and we are so impressed with these items, even though we never draw the correlation that these items take up our time, our passion, and our financial resources. Whatever gets those three things is what you're worshiping. They make us feel good. There's a neurological response to these things that we are addicted to. Sometimes so much so that we try and impress others with what we have obtained with ourselves. We're engaging in worship. But in that definition, it's corporate. We worship the idol of our pride. We're so impressed with ourselves, our beauty, our career, our knowledge, we're impressed with how we dress, how we act the, way, the act, the way that we talk. We love ourselves. We worship the God of personality. From athletes to actors to musicians to celebrities, we turn these individuals into deities. And they're worshipped by their fans. We worship the God of pleasure. There's many people that I know that they can't go to a social gathering unless there's a drink in their hand. Known too many who have now entered in the realm of becoming a recovering drug addict. We overeat. It's a part of our norm. We fall into sexual sin. The statistics of the pornography and what it has done to the next generation is shocking. And have you ever noticed that the Bible speaks of idol worship and not atheism? The reason why that is is because atheism is idol worship. It's man taking man's mind and being more impressed with our mind than we are God's. I also think it's worth noting that Paul lists sexual sin as a key feature in a rebellious, godless, and sinful culture, specifically listing lesbianism and homosexuality. There's too many denominations right now who are paying a lot of money to try and dive into the history of this verse to say he didn't really mean that was sin. And we'll be touching on the topic of sex and sexuality in the future. And please hear, my heart isn't one of hate and condemnation this morning. 
may we please recognize that Scripture doesn't punch us in the face, it sets us free. But we have to acknowledge that right now there's a common belief among Christians that you can be a Christian and a practicing homosexual, and Paul says no. Paul says that this lifestyle is representative of a wicked, sinful heart, not a repentant heart. You and I cannot live, there's a difference between you and I stumbling with sin and justifying sin and calling it our identity. That's not your identity. God's given you a new one. The list goes on and sin progresses to envy and murder and arrogance until we see an entire society that is lost and blind. Can I beg of you, church, that now is not the time to be silent. In our culture, this is not the time to sit down. This is the time to stand up. And I don't mean, again, I don't mean stand up in a hateful way that says, I'm right, you're wrong, but stand up in a way that is loving and redeeming, that seeks the best for others. And the statement is made, Paul says, God gave them over, and we touched on this a few weeks ago, to the reality that sometimes God's judgment comes by letting you have what you've asked for. Sometimes his judgment comes by giving you exactly what you wanted. We see an example of this in the Old Testament with the Israelites, where they say over and over and over again, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king. And God says, you don't need a king, I'm your king. And over and over and over, the Israelites say, we want a king. We want to be like those other nations. And God, because he loves us, he always warns us. And that's what Paul is doing. Paul doesn't mention God's wrath in an irrelevant way. Paul says these things, this is what brings on God's wrath. And he lists out the sin that you and I are all too familiar with. He lists out every sin that you can imagine for the most part. And he says, this is what brings about God's wrath. And in the Old Testament, we have the people of Israel saying, we want a king. And God, because he loves us, he warns us. And he tells the Israelites, you don't want to do this. It's going to cause division. And he warns them of oppression and oppressive rulers that will rule over them. But then he backs away, and we see in Scripture, he says, but if this is what you want, sometimes God's judgment comes by him letting us have what we want and what we've demanded of him. And he steps back and says, you know what, you can have it. And please understand, it's not God stepping back in a way that says, ha, 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 you just wait and see. But it's God stepping back and saying, I don't want you to learn this lesson. But you're so closed off to me that the only way to get you to see what I want for you is by you learning this lesson. The culture that Paul describes is so unaware and so blinded. And we learn this principle in Romans chapter 1 that has been reiterated throughout Scripture, that the more you engage with sin, the less you will be able to see certain distinctions of reality. 
The more that you and I engage with sin, the more detached from reality we are. You have to understand that when you and I see individuals who are caught up in this false reality, and it's what they've created as a result of saying God doesn't exist. When you and I say God doesn't exist, that's the posture of false reality. And soon we live under this false reality and we create a fantasy world that is so detached from reality that we start asking the most basic things. We start asking the most foolish questions because we're so detached from the reality in front of us. We start asking questions like, what is a man and what is a woman? Well, why can't we just sleep with whoever we want? We start asking questions that prove to us that we're detached from reality when we start asking, well, what does gender matter? When we start asking these questions, it's evidence that we've created a false reality as a result of living as if God doesn't exist. And the more and more you and I say this is normal, the more that you and I say this is okay, the more that we are enslaved to sin, the tighter the strengths on us become. Sin always causes us to think the same things. Since Adam and Eve, I can handle it. I can control this. And soon you're so enslaved that you don't know what liberation or freedom is anymore. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 22 through 23, as the worship team comes. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die. Led astray by their own great folly. And we see this pattern since the beginning, since Adam and Eve, sin still kind of operates the same way, causing us to challenge the Word of God. Did God really say that? Did God really mean that that was sin? I'm sure He meant something different, and little by little we begin to justify it's the same thing that happened in Adam and Eve in the garden. That Satan comes along and begins to challenge us, those who know God. Adam and Eve knew God. Did you know that? They knew God personally. And it's happening more and more today among his church that there are Christians, those who know him and know his word, and they allow Satan to kind of come in the back door and say, hey, I don't know if God really meant that. And we begin to challenge God the same way that Adam and Eve did. Did God really mean, did God really say that this was sin? And little by little, you and I are forced to pay a price that we could never afford. And had it not been for Jesus, this is where the story would end. Condemned, ready to face God's wrath, no hope for eternity, 
But then there's Jesus. And then Jesus steps into this situation and he takes the cup of wrath that was meant for you and I that had our names on it and he drinks it. Then there's the gospel that comes in and opens blind eyes to where people are able to see the reality of God. God opens our eyes and gives us a clear understanding of what we are saved from or what we are saved for his glory and his purpose. And the gospel of Jesus brings us to this beautiful reality that we are all sinners in need of a savior. That you and I cannot do it alone. And he gives us these beautiful testimonies like the one that I heard this past week of a practicing Satanist who was in charge of literally the Satanist church in South Africa. And what ends up happening is this Satanist, true story by the way, this Satanist comes to a practice where they're getting ready to perform a Satanic ritual. In the midst of this ritual, he says, I see Jesus. And he takes a step back and says, if you're real, prove it. And the Satanist, the Satanist says, I've, I've felt a love that I've never felt my entire life. He said, I can't explain it. He said, I felt a wholeness like you can't imagine. And in the midst of a satanic ritual, he said, that's when I decided to follow Jesus. He goes on to tell his story. He said, I planned on leaving the satanic church out the back door just kind of quietly. But he says, thousands of followers of mine on social media accounts are reaching out to me asking where I've been. And he says, and I can't help but tell them what Jesus has done for me because if Jesus has done this for me, he'll do it for you. Jesus sets us free. Jesus gives us a love and a wholeness like you couldn't imagine. Jesus gives us an identity that nothing can compare to. Friend, can I tell you this morning that Jesus saves. Would you stand with me this morning? Wrath is a part of his character. Because I understand his wrath, I now understand his mercy and his grace and his love. That he would die as the old hymn says, that he would die for a wretch like me. And still today, Christ is saving us. Now is not the time to shy away or be ashamed of the gospel. Now is not the time to say, you know, I, it's, it doesn't say that. It needs updated. No. No, it doesn't. God said it, therefore it is. Heaven and earth may pass away, but my word, he says, my word is eternal. I want to ask you the question this morning, church. Where are you on this list? 
is Paul does something kind of peculiar. He's going through all of these sins that if you and I were to grade, like there's some really bad ones. Murder, I mean, come on. You can't get really worse than that, am I right? So you're going through this list and Paul says something peculiar. In the middle of the list, he says, and they don't even obey their parents. And you look at that and you're like, wait, Paul, Paul, what does that have to do with the rest of the list, man? Like you went from zero to a hundred and then back down to zero. And Paul is saying this, that rebellion is rebellion. All this falls under the same category. All this sin falls under the same topic that we rebelled against God. And I want to ask you this morning, are you holding on to sin that Jesus died to set you free from? Maybe you made a choice and sin got its hooks in you and now it feels like you are enslaved and you're here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, Bible study after Bible study and you say, Pastor, I thought by now I would be set free from this. Nobody else knows that this is going on and Christ is here today calling saying, my son, my daughter, let's set you free today. Or are you carrying around guilt and shame and condemnation as if you're still enslaved to sin, but God's like, I've set you free from this. Why are you beating yourself up? Why are you replaying the message, those words that somebody spoke to you that caused hurt in your life? Why are you replaying that on a reel over and over again? Why are you replaying this? And Jesus says, I've set you free from that. I've redeemed you. So I ask you the question, where are you and I on this list? Are our hearts in 100% obedience? Or maybe somewhere on this list you say, Pastor, I might not specifically be on that list, but I have definitely rebelled in the fact that this message that was preached today, I've, I've fallen under the false belief that it's irrelevant, and now God is trying to call you back to a place of truth. Where are you at on the list? Would you bow your heads with me this morning? And this morning, I, I'm not going to ask for anybody to raise their hand or make eye contact with me today. This is between each and every one of us and God. And I want to ask you to have the conversation between you and the Holy Spirit this morning. Where are you on the list? Where is God calling you to be obedient to? Have you been so absorbed in the guilt and shame of past sin that you actually still believe that that's your identity? Jesus says, no, I've given you a new one. You're a new creation. Have you gotten caught up in the secret sin? Nobody else knows. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, I show up here. And this is still happening. And rather than it liberating you, rather than it setting you free, this sin in your life that nobody else knows about has just so enslaved you that it actually feels like it's impossible to break out of. And I want to tell you, no, it's not. With Jesus, all things are possible. Where are you at on the list? Where's he calling you out of? Because it's a conversation that needs to happen today between you and God. So I want to challenge you right here, right now, with any, without anybody looking around, what is it that God's calling you to give to him? 
Is it, is it boldness? Have you shied away from the gospel message ashamed because you see what's happening in the world? And you say, Pastor, I don't want to be offensive. I understand that, but we're still called to preach truth. And we have arrived at a time during the historical timeline when truth is now offensive. So friend, you're not getting out of it. Jesus said that if they hated me, they're going to hate you. He also went on to say, I've come to divide. Now you're at a point where Jesus is saying, I want you to speak truth in love, but speak it nevertheless. Here's what I want us to do this morning without anybody looking around. It's a common practice in our church that we lift our hands because it symbolizes outwardly what's happening inwardly. And inwardly, our hearts, we're just saying, Jesus, you can have it. And so we put up our hands to symbolize that. There's something powerful about just, just, just doing what God tells us to do and expressing that, saying, here I am, Lord, send me. There's power in motion. And I just want to challenge you this morning, without anybody looking around, as you just begin to give those things over to God, would you just lift your hands high, believing by faith, it's his now. Whatever you've been holding on to, it's his. Whatever insecurities have been, have been just consuming you, it's his. Whatever guilt, shame, and condemnation, as you lift your hands up high, you're giving it to him. It's his. Whatever identity that you have falsely believed is you, you're now justifying your past hurts, saying this is who I am. God says, no, I've set you free from that. Whatever it is here today, God, I give you my fears. I give you every, my insecurities. I will preach the gospel in its entirety, recognizing that there's no such thing as the partial gospel. There's no such thing as a part of you. There's only all of you. And I'm going to ask that the worship team just continue to lead us in this course that says, God, your goodness is running after me. And I can't think of a better response to his goodness than saying, God, here I am. Have all of me. This morning, church, let's do business with God. Let's meet with God. Don't leave here with the same shame that you came in here carrying. Leave here knowing what it is to walk in freedom. All you have to do is ask him. God, take it, and he will. Worship team, would you lead us?
Would you pray with me one more time, church? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that even when we didn't feel or see ourselves as worth saving, you still went to the cross. Lord, we thank you that you take us as we are, but you don't leave us as we are. Lord, we thank you for the transformational power in your name that sets the addict free, that heals the brokenhearted, that gives the anxious and depressed joy and peace. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the transformational power in your name. God, I pray this morning that as we leave this place, we would go and we would be the church that you've called us to be, preaching the gospel message in its entirety. Lord, I pray that as we continue to have a deeper understanding of who you are, that we would have a deeper understanding of knowing whose we are, that we would understand that we were bought at a price, that we are not our own, we are yours. And Lord, for the cup of wrath that you took upon yourself, we owe you our lives. So Jesus, help us to leave this place speaking your word in truth and in love, therefore displaying your very character. Now, Lord, mold us, shape us, break us, remake us, whatever it is that you desire to do in us and through us. May we be obedient in Jesus' precious and holy name. And everybody said, amen. If you could hold steadfast for one moment. Let me just preface what Judy is about to say for a minute. I've said it before, I'll say it again. It's insane to me to show up to a church believing that there's one true God, but also in the same time saying, but he doesn't speak anymore. God still speaks. Amen, church? Amen. And sometimes he gives an impression on our hearts, a word that's not just for us, but it's for the body of Christ. And that's a word that I believe Judy has brought this morning. So Judy, would you yes, share with us? For I would say, I am straightening out crooked paths this day. I am causing you to walk in my word in obedience to, your, to my word. For it is Satan who comes to rob, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come to give you life and life yes, more abundant. Yes. Walk in the power of my word in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So go walk in his power, church. Amen. God bless you as you go with the Lord. He's going with you. This has been an audio recording from Crossroads Community Church. If you'd like to get in contact with us or learn more about us, you can follow us on social media at C3Lehigh or email us at info at C3Lehigh.com. We'd love to hear from you.